It's great to have you with us today. Well, last week we launched into a brand new teaching series on the book of Genesis. And Pastor Jason made the point that if you jump into something at the end of the story, a lot of times you miss a lot of important content. Take a series like The Lord of the Rings or The Hunger Games or the uh, Star Wars or the Marvel movies. And if you just jump in at the end of that series, you might know kind of what's going on, at least the big picture, but you've missed a lot of important content. The book of Genesis is like that. The book of Genesis. If you just jump right to the end, you maybe of the Bible, you might get some of the big picture pieces, but you're going to miss a lot of the richness and a lot of the important content. As the narrative of scripture unfolds, hundreds of characters are introduced. I should say historical figures. Hundreds of historical figures and some characters too are introduced over the course of thousands of years and three continents. And think about this. The tips of the furthest branches on that family tree can all be traced all the way back to Genesis. And there's a resource that we're recommending throughout the series. It's called thebibleproject.com. Um, and they have all these great videos on this, this site. Well, on that site, they, they highlight 16 different key themes that they say are these themes that you can find woven throughout Scripture. Guess how many of those 16 themes get their start in Genesis? All 16. There is so much here. So much here in Genesis. If you have your Bible with you, please open with me to the beginning of it all. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And as we're turning there, if you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to go home with one free today. We keep a stack of them at that table in the back uh, each and every week, and we'd love for you to go home with one absolutely free, even if you come to the 915 service, right? All right, here we go. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there's a whole lot to that verse. Why do I say that? I say that for a lot of reasons. One of them is, in my study Bible, as I'm sure you can read each and every word from there in the back, right? In my study Bible, they have two verses up at the top. All the rest is commentary on those two verses. And is this the full extent of what could be said about those two verses? No, no, not even close. There is so much here. So much here in this. The seven Hebrew words that make up Genesis 1-1, the seven Hebrew words, they are the bedrock from which all the rest is built. How significant are these opening words? <laughs> I just showed you the only two verses on that first page of Genesis. Everything else is commentary. Well, before we continue reading in Genesis, and we're going to, we're going to read through the whole chapter here today, I want to ask you this important question before we get started. And this question is important enough. We want to encourage you to, to write it down in your notes. Here's the question. Which origin story do you embrace and why? Which origin story do you embrace and why? And if you're like a lot of people, they would say, this is really easy. I embrace science, right? I embrace science. One of the biggest myths that I want to address before we start going into the scriptures here is that you have to choose. That you have to choose between science and Genesis. That you have to choose between the facts and the scriptures. I don't believe you do. 
I was pre-med in college, and I spent a lot of time in the sciences, taking courses like chemistry and physics and biology and human anatomy. And then in my postgraduate work, I spent a lot of time studying the scriptures. And I had all these classes on hermeneutics and systematic theology and biblical studies. And none of that makes me an expert, but it does make me fairly well positioned to be able to say, I can see when you're distorting science. I can see when you're misrepresenting scripture. And I see that happening all the time. Back in 2015, we did a series, maybe if you were here for it, called The Rocks Cry Out, where we, we looked at the, the, la, the, the complementary nature of the facts and the scriptures. And one of the things that I tried to do is I, I always try to say, I want to look at other sides of this, right? And really try to understand why people believe what they do. And so one of the books that I picked up and read um, was this one by a guy named Richard Dawkins. He's an outspoken critic of Christianity. In fact, he's just downright condescending um, towards Christians. And I want to understand why. And this, one, this book specifically, he's talking about his understanding of, of how we got here. And so I read all 437 pages. You know, I read this whole thing. And for 418 of the pages, he makes the case that Genesis and the facts are at odds with one another. So he does that for 418 pages, says you're, you're basically an idiot to believe that, that the scriptures are are true, and they're at odds with the facts. But then, just a few pages, at the end of, before the end of his book, he writes this. I'm not making this up. After the service, I can come up. I can show you where he says this. At page 419, he says this. We have no evidence about what the first step in making life was. But we do know the kind of step it might, step it might have been. It must have been whatever it took to get natural selection started. Let me read that again. We have no evidence. We have no evidence about what the first step and what word did he choose next? Making. That's an interesting choice. We have no evidence about what the first step in making life was, but we do know the kind of step it must, step it must have been. It must have been whatever it took to get the natural selection process started. <laughs> How many of you know at least a little bit about science? Show of hands. Just at least a little, okay? With a show of hands, how many would say this? We got here by getting here is not good science. <laughs> All right. Dawkins doubles down. He doubles down just a few pages later. Again, I'm not making this up. These are his words. He says, we don't actually need a plausible theory of the origin of life. Just take that phrase, plausible theory. We don't even need a plausible theory, not, not facts. We don't even need a plausible theory of the origin of life. We should move towards, <laughs> this is astounding, we should move towards positively expecting that no plausible theory exists. After making the claim for 418 pages that the facts refute the scriptures, Dawkins offers an origin story, now these are my words, not his, that goes something like this, matter plus time plus countless implausible occurrences equals life. Again, those are my words, not his. But I can defend those words in terms of what he's presenting as his case. That does not sound like a compelling, fact-based, scientifically solid origin story, at least not to me. So when we did that series back in 2015, what we tried to offer is different perspectives on this, of how did we get here? Specifically, the life question. There's a lot less controversy, there's still controversy, but a lot less controversy that, that there was some sort of evolutionary process in play. 
almost nobody debates that. But how did life begin? You know, and so we offered things like this. They, um, this is from a guy named Jonathan Wells. He says, you can't make a living cell. There's not even a point in trying. It would be like a physicist trying to do an experiment to see if he can get a rock to fall upwards all the way to the moon. No biologist in his right mind would think you can take a test tube with those molecules and turn them into a cell. The problem of assembling the right parts in the right way at the right time at the right place while keeping out the wrong material, it is simply insurmountable. Charles Darwin himself anticipated his original theory might require future adjustments. Take a look at this. Darwin said this in his Origin of Series, and I quote, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory, the theory of evolution, my theory would absolutely break down. The reality is that the very cells that make up not just the most complex, but the simplest of our organs are far more complex than the science of Darwin's day ever realized. Okay, all this to say, all this to say, here's my point here. If you believe that this incredible creation that we see, that we observe, that we study, if you believe that it bears the fingerprints of a creator, you're not alone. There's others who say that is part of my origin story too that the facts and the scriptures are far more complementary than they are contradictory. Since the dawn of recorded history, people have been asking questions about how did we get here? They've been asking those questions. And I want to make the case to you that it's not just a bunch of superstitious people believing superstitious stuff. There might have been some of that, but these questions mattered. Why did they matter? They mattered because if your crops failed, what might happen to you? You might starve. So they wanted to know, how do we have a successful yield? If you or your animals were not able to conceive, what would happen to your tribe? Your tribe would go into extinction. If you faced an enemy that was more powerful than you were, where could you go for hope of salvation? These are the kind of questions that people were wrestling with. If help was needed, where do you go for help? Is it just chance? Luck? Is it all depend on you? Or are there higher powers? If so, how do you pray? How do you interact with them? These were questions that mattered because they mattered in real life. IDK, I don't know, might seem like a valid option to a 21st century author. But for most people in the ancient world, and for people like me today, I want to know how does life work? Is it all chance? Is it all up to me? Or are there other things that are bigger than myself that I can call upon? If so, how? A resource that does a great job of helping us understand ancient origin stories is this book right here. It's called the NIV Application Commentary, specifically on Genesis. And it's written by a guy named John Walton. He does a really good job at contrasting the ancient origin stories. And if you look in your notes, you should have a yellow sheet that I would encourage you to pull out right now and take a look at. This is right from his book. I wasn't able to include everything from both of the charts, but I have parts of two of his charts. And what these charts are doing is they're contrasting what does it say in Genesis with what people were saying at that time and in that place in Egypt 
and what they were saying in that time and in that place in the land that they were going into. And this is remarkable stuff. This is a great resource. I'm so thankful for things like this. There's some eye-opening stuff here. Again, remember that Genesis was originally written to people who were coming out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And they were going into a new land. And Egypt had its gods, and the new land had its gods. Genesis was given to these people who were right at that point of transition. And so you would expect to see some of these contrasts in there. For example, the Egyptians worshipped the sun as a god. As we're about to read here soon, Genesis makes it clear the sun is not a god. In fact, there's only one true god who created the sun to serve his purposes. In Babylonian mythology, one of the nations that they would be encountering generations later, there's a sky god who creates four winds, and these winds stir up the waters. And as they stir up the waters, they stir up this god of the sea, this goddess of the sea. And she comes, and it's all kinds of problem after that. In the Genesis account, it's fascinating. Genesis, the language used there in Hebrew, it's a word for wind, but it refers to the Holy Spirit, who didn't cause chaos as it's hovering over the waters, but instead is there as God is bringing order and beauty and life. There's these contrasts that are all throughout this book of Genesis. There is more to Genesis than most people think. So I would encourage you, the reason we printed this up is so you could take it home and read it. Don't let this tree die in vain, all right? Don't let the tree die in vain. As a side note, Walton is becoming one of my heroes. The guy who wrote this book, you know why? Ask me why. I'll tell you why. Because he, in this book, he says, one of the things that he does, he teaches the sixth graders at his church. John Walton, who wrote this commentary, who wrote a whole bunch of other great books on this, this expert in the field, this guy that teaches postgraduate level classes. He teaches his sixth graders at his church. Let's not, at our church, be satisfied by giving our young people anything less than our best. Can I get an amen? All right. Well, Walton, he sees his investment as strategic. Right around sixth grade, maybe parents, you've noticed this before, around sixth grade, a little bit, sometimes before, sometimes after, around sixth grade, young people begin to transition from a faith that was once their parents' faith to their own faith, a faith that is fully theirs. And the issues in Genesis are some of the first intellectual obstacles that they come across. Was the Garden of Eden real? Where does it fall on a map? Did the serpent really talk? Does he speak today? Did God create everything in, a, in six 24-hour days? Or are there room for other theories? And then, especially for a lot of little boys, where do the dinosaurs fit in all this stuff, right? Genesis raises a lot of questions, a lot of questions. And the more I study Genesis, the more I see what it doesn't do, what Genesis doesn't do is it doesn't put itself at odds with the facts. That's one of the things that I, that I see. Facts are our friends. Can I get an amen? Facts are our friends. Well, one of our members is a former agnostic. And when he heard that we were doing Genesis, he got all excited. And he, re he sent me a bunch of books by John Walton references. He says, you got to read this guy. And I'm like, I know this guy and he's great. But here's what he said. Former agnostic, right? He says this. He said, Walton's stuff, he says, actually makes me giddy. 
Adult man using the word giddy. He says, it makes me giddy because it makes sense within the framework of history and science and the Bible without twisting any of them. It allows for a six-day creation. It allows for a six-billion-year evolutionary process. He says it allows for this. It's exciting stuff. With the time we have left, what I want to do is not say any more about John Walton. What I want to do is go to the scriptures themselves. Let's look at four key themes that Genesis actually presents. Here we go. Theme number one, there is only one God. There's only one God. Genesis begins by drawing a line in the sand. It claims there's only one God and he created all this, all this. One of the interesting features of the Old Testament is the Hebrew word bara. Most of our English versions of the Bible translate bara as created. Fun fact about bara. The verb occurs about 50 times in the Old Testament. Every time it's used, this word we translate as created, it's God creating. It's God doing it. It's God's activity. There's a lot of baraing in Genesis 1, which brings us to theme number two. The cosmos wasn't always as it is now. This is what we're going to see now as we take our Bible and open up. So if you want to open back up, if you closed it to Genesis 1, um, let's read. And we're going to see that, that, that everything wasn't as it is now. There was a forming, there was a filling that God did. All right, we're going to read 1 through 25. So I'm going to take care of my vocal cords before we do. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was an evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. The waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw it was good. And there was evening, there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and for them to be signs for seasons, for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day, over the night, to separate the light from the darkness that God saw it was good. And there was evening, there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the, across the earth, the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves and which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas. Let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. 
And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, the beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was what? It was good. All right, let's talk about this a little bit. A number of my commentaries commented on the structure of what we just read. And on the back of your green sheet, I want to draw your attention to a a little chart that was one of the many charts I came across that speaks to this. In the creation account, that was a lot of words, and sometimes it seems to blur together. But when people zoom back and they take a look, there's a great deal of intentionality that's happening here. In the course of the creation account in chapter 1, you have the, from going from chaos to the cosmos. You have God taking what was formless and forming it, forming light and darkness, forming in day 1, in day 2, forming the water and the sky, in day 3, the sea, the land, the plants. And then days 4 through 6, you have God taking what was empty and filling it. In day 4, filling it with the sun, the moon, the stars. Day 5, the birds and the fish. Day 6, animals and humans. And what God saw was good. And what God saw at the end of the seven days was very good. This brings us to theme number three. Theme number three. The heavens and the earth are filled with what? They are filled with good. Filled with good. That phrase, it was good, is repeated multiple times. We find it in verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, where it's translated identical in English all those times, and God saw it was good. And then it gets tweaked just a little bit in verse 31. On the last day of creation, God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. I spent a couple of days up at Covenant Pines a couple of weeks ago. You know, sometimes you got to get out of the office to, to get things done. And I, and I brought some of my Genesis study materials with me. And so I'm reading Genesis. I'm studying Genesis. And I'm up there at this beautiful camp in northern Minnesota. And I watched a stunning sunset over the lake. And as the sun got close to the horizon, it became bright red. And the skies were vivid blue with banks and white from the clouds. And it was good. And when day changed to night, the stars, when you get out of the cities, aren't they so vibrant? The longer you sit and look at stars, the more they start to pop out. And it was good. And the sky and the sea and the land were teeming with life. The skies, I saw eagles, I saw loons, I saw birds of all shapes and sizes, and it was good. And there were fish in those waters, northerns, walleyes, and it was good. And on the land, I saw deer running, I saw squirrels scampering, I saw a snake slithering that I had to send pictures of to the family so they could go, eek, you know, and... <laughs> I saw this big, you know those big old snapping turtles that are the size of like a footstool? One of those was lumbering across the wreck field. And it was good. There were seed-bearing plants of every kind that were thriving. My senses were filled with sights and sounds and sensations, and it was good. In this room, we're going to disagree because I know many of where you're coming from because of the resources you pointed me to. We're going to disagree on how long this took and exactly how it all played out. 
But I would hope that every one of us and everybody from Richard Dawkins to Ken Ham, from John Walton to Bill Nye, the science guy, I would hope that we could all agree that when we look out, what we see is good. That there's so much good. As I was studying Genesis 1, this caught my attention for the first time. Let's put those two verses, Ben, please, right back up on the screen. Let's put them on the same one. Look at this. God, what does it say? He saw. He saw that it was good. The next verse, that 31. God saw everything he had made, and it was good. Remember that phrase, saw, or that word, saw. Because we're going to come back to that next week. This idea that our God is a God who sees The reason that's so important is because as we were talking about this world is good, this world is good, this world is good, many of your minds probably went to, yeah, it's good and. It's good and. The sky is teeming with eagles and mosquitoes. You know? (laughs) The, the, The land is teeming with animals and why do they eat one another? This world is teeming with life And this world is filled with death. God is a God who sees. He sees the good. He sees the not good. And we're going to talk about that next week as we dive into chapter 3. But what I want to do today before we land the plane is highlight one more essential theme from Genesis chapter 1. And that theme is this. God created humans in his image. I cannot stress the importance of this enough. God created humans... In his image. Here's how chapter 1 closes out. Let's go back to our text. Verses 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our own image. After our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. The birds of the heavens. Over the livestock. And over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God Bless them. Blessing is another uh, a key theme that we're going to come back to throughout the series. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds, over the heavens, over every living thing that moves on this earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed that is in its or in its fruit and you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth to every bird of the heavens to everything that creeps on the earth everything that has the breath of life i have given every green plant for food and it was so and god saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good and there was evening there was morning the sixth day again it is hard to overstate how significant this is and how it contrasts with the other worldviews that are out there. Particularly the ancient worldviews. It contrasts. In the ancient world, most of these other neighboring nations, an image, in their, in their origin stories, an image was believed to carry the presence of that which is represented. Meaning, if you had an idol, that idol somehow had the presence of that God within it. That's one of the reasons why they were worshipped. Because they were thought to contain the deity's essence. If ever a person was said to bear the image of God, it was only kings. And guess who were the people that often were saying, oh yeah, we bear the image of God. It was the kings themselves, right? In the ancient world, for the rest of humanity, they were just an afterthought in these origin stories. 
They were an afterthought. Genesis turns all that upside down. In Genesis, idols have no intrinsic value. Often they're called worthless, right? In the scriptures, worthless. And in Genesis, kings and rulers, they are just as flawed as everyone else. Often more so. In Genesis, after God orders and forms and fills the cosmos, he then creates a man and a woman, and they both bear his image, and they both reflect his character, and all humanity has been entrusted to be God's representatives here on earth, all of us. Every person you will ever lock eyes with, every person you will ever encounter, they bear the image of God. And so I got another important question for you. What are the implications of your origin story? Of the origin story you embrace, what are the implications? If you believe, as Dawkins does, that humanity is a result of matter plus time plus chance, What universal moral code can you pull forth from that? Dawkins' origin stories has the same implications as the ancient origin stories that taught that only kings bear the image of God. I believe the implications are the same. The implications are if you're strong enough, if you're lucky enough, if you're privileged enough, then you can have your way. If there is a creator who brought order and life and good, and if that creator has entrusted us with the same sacred responsibility to care for the world he created, especially the people who bear his image, that is a game changer. Which brings us to this, the last point on our, on our, that we have time for today. There's a place to write this in your notes. As Christians, our great co-mission was first revealed in Genesis. I never had language for this before. Jesus gave us a great commission, right? It has its root back in Genesis when we were commissioned to be his representatives on this earth. Nothing affects everything like leadership. And if people aren't leading this world well, if we're not caring for things the way we were called to care for it, Things are bad. Just think about this. Think about the good that humans are capable of on this earth and how different that is than the good that other things can do. And think of the opposite. Think of when humans are not good, how devastating that can be. Think of the potential when we act in not good ways. Think of the devastation that has for us, the devastation that can have for our world when we're not good. The pain and the brokenness that we see all around us, it wasn't there in the beginning. One last quote by John Walton. It is important to understand that hope for the future does not depend on an attempt to achieve something that has never been, but to restore what was lost. What was lost. And next week, that's where we pick up. Something happened in Genesis 3. And the God who sees saw it, and it affected everything in a not good way. Our great commission is to join God in bringing back order and beauty and good as we restore what was broken.
And I had a chance to see this in action last week up at camp too. Because right now at camp, they're getting ready for everyone. In fact, Caitlin's the keynote speaker next week. They're getting ready to start receiving guests for the summer season. So what they're doing is they're trying to do good up there. And it's like they're creating the garden, right? They're reflecting God in this. The God who brought form from the formless and filled the emptiness with good things. You know, picture this in your mind. Picture a beautiful camp in northern Minnesota. The grounds up there looked great. The grass was freshly cut. The trees were trimmed. The buildings were clean and prepared. The camp staff, it was hilarious because here's all these groups of camp staff all over doing games that they're going to do for the kids without the kids. It was awesome. They're getting them ready. They're getting them ready. There was life. There was beauty. There was so much good coming forth from disorder. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about us. And I was thinking the implications of our origin story. Right now, this summer, us. We have an opportunity to represent God well, each and every one of us. And to be about his business. A lot of us are going to be outside, right? Taking on projects in the backyard or in the front yard. Do you realize that can be sacred work? As you're taking the disorder and the weeds and the, all of the everything, you're pulling that out and you're creating and you're caring for and watering and making something beautiful. You can represent God well in that, in bringing order from the chaos. I might get a couple amens on this next thing I'm going to say. When you take a disordered room and you bring order to a room that you are trusted to steward. Did I just hear someone say preach it? (laughs) You can be doing holy work when you're bringing order from disorder. When you're caring for a pet, remind your kids of this if you have them or your nieces or your nephews. When you're caring for an animal, you're doing what we were taught to do in Genesis. If you're a coach or you're leading a project at work, when you take a disorganized group of individuals and you begin to bring them together for a common purpose, bringing order and purpose and beauty from chaos and keeping it on track, you're doing holy work. Builders, you especially get to see this, right? You are taking the stuff of the earth and you're creating with it. You're creating things that are safe and secure, that have purpose and meaning and order and structure. When you're building, you can be doing holy work. This is why the word says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, right? It says, whatever you do, do it with all your heart as serving the Lord. We're bringing order. We're bringing, we're doing God's work. When you present and prepare a meal, what are you doing? You're taking these ingredients from all over. You're bringing them together. You're creating something to be savored and enjoyed. You're creating a moment. Do you see how practical this is? We can represent God well. And most important of all, it's in our relationships with others who bear the image of God. Are we going to choose to be agents of disorder and fragmentation and polarization? Are we going to go out there and do the opposite? Or are we going to go out and try to bring restoration, hope, healing, joy, 
Do you see how practical all this is? This is what's on the line. This is why origin stories matter. They should affect our everyday real life. And as we set out to represent God well, the God who sees is also a God who empowers, and he'll be with us in this work. Before the worship band seals this song, this time with a song, let's pray and let's seal this, this moment as we seal it with song. Father, we are so thankful. You know, I, I, I feel like, um, like a, a kid who grows up next door to Disney World and they have a season pass and they're like, oh, what should I go on today? And they forget just how remarkable, you know, that place is. We're like that often with our creation. And we start with a prayer for asking for your forgiveness. That we fail to honor you and recognize this beauty and the wonder and the good that is all around us. Father, thank you that you've invited us to partner with you in this great commission to steward well and to create and to bring and to 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 make things more beautiful and to restore what's broken. Help us to go forth from this place with eyes that see as you see. That we may be a part of your great work. I want to pray specifically for this group here. For those who see a lot of life as mundane, Lord, would you bless us by helping us to see how so many of these, what normally are considered mundane tasks, they're sacred moments and sacred opportunities. Help us to see that in Jesus' name. Amen.